and welcome to the Surgical Society podcast. I'm Frank Davis, the president of the Surgical Society and host of this podcast. Throughout the year, I'm going to be talking to world-leading surgeons, incredible doctors with interesting passions, and the brightest and best medical students to help you score higher in your exams. Please follow our social media, cu underscore surgstock, and rate and download this podcast. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Mr. Mike Stevens is a consultant, kidney transplant and vascular access surgeon based in Cardiff. He's also the clinical lead for transplantation in Wales, as well as a director for general surgery. So thank you very much for giving up your time today. No problem. No problem at all. Um, So it'd be great to start with a little bit of background on you. So where did you study and and what's brought you to Cardiff? Well, actually, I studied in Cardiff, actually. I did uh, my undergraduate training in in Cardiff University. So I originally grew up in in, uh, in North Wales, um, but came down to to Cardiff in 1994 to study medicine. Um, And I've basically stayed ever since. I did my surgical training in and around South Wales um, and then obviously I've got the consultant post down in Cardiff. Wow and so obviously being here at university they managed to convince you to, to stay for the rest of your well for the rest of your life? Yes well it's um, it's it's one of those things that obviously that the house the house jobs as they were then the foundation program jobs as they are now um, were you know, you were guaranteed a place in in Wales at that point, and once you once you kind of start working in in an area, particularly it's you know Wales is a good place to to work, particularly in um, in surgical specialities. Um, so it kind of got me it got me hooked, and obviously the longer you're, you're living in a great city like Cardiff, that you kind of question why would I want to go anywhere else really. Um, so yeah, it tick, ticks all the boxes for me. And how did you find your surgical training in in Cardiff and around South Wales? Um, well, it, it's it's I guess it's interesting really that surgery wasn't always what I wanted to do. Actually, when I when I finished medical school, I, I was leaning much more towards uh, general practice actually than anything else. But my my first job was was in the Royal Gwent Hospital with. Um, with the surgical team there um, and it was just fantastic I, I didn't get all that much experience in, at undergraduate level of, of surgery but this this placement really sort of illustrated to me what, what was involved in surgery and the types of patients that you look after what's required of that um, and that changed my mind really uh, so I committed to a career in surgery sort of at, at that point rather than earlier and then the rest of the training is is good. I think, um, you know, it's like all uh, um, like all craft specialities. It's hard work. You you do have to put in the hours. There's no substitute for for time in theatres, time seeing patients on the ward. It, you know, you can't you can't get around that really. And if you do, if you work shorter, working weeks. It, what that means is you have to train for longer. There isn't any other way around it. You, there's a certain level of experience that you need to be able to do the job, and that takes a certain length of time. So the early years were long pre, uh, well, actually, even before the 
uh, the, what was called the New Deal, which was which is now not a New Deal anymore because I think it came in in the year two thousand. Um, but the, the the sort of pay and arrangements back then were really pretty awful. Um, but the uh, and the hours were very long. There were other things that compensated for that. There were it was a very strong team approach to things. You work very much as a team. It was unusual for you not to be on call with the same people every time. And the patients that you admitted, they stayed your patients for the duration of their admission, which um, which was good. Um, we can't do that anymore just because of the way that the systems have changed. So we have to have much more robust handover and things now. Um, and it adds extra complexity. I think it's the right thing. The you know, number of hours we used to work wasn't, wasn't right, really, overall, I don't think. Um, I can't say I can't say it was I ever at any point regretted doing the cert trading though I didn't when I was in the middle of it think this is terrible uh, at any point in time it was always I always felt a privilege to be where I was and to be going where I wanted to really I never it never occurred to me that this was a um a hardship in some way doing the doing the work or doing the hours um I think it's it's interesting at the moment I'm sure you've all seen that there's quite a lot of sort of negativity in social media at the moment about doctors' hours and the expectations, and obviously pay is a big issue. Um, and it, it's interesting. I don't know whether that's just a factor of the way social media amplifies things, but I've never. I've, it's, it's new. This this isn't something that I've come across before. Really, it certainly wasn't an issue uh, that was brought up when I was training. Okay, so yeah, so you mentioned that it all feels quite new. So, do you think that they're they're right in in asking for this sort of pay restoration or less hours? Because you know they're doing it through the eyes of of patient safety. Yeah, I, well, I think I think what has happened over the years is that there has been too much expectation on what doctors should do and are willing to do, um, and that needs rectifying. The pay clearly hasn't um, kept up with what it should have. Been although actually junior doctors' pay has always been pretty rubbish. Right. Um, I won't embarrass you by telling you how much I earned when I qualified, but I worked well. I worked New Year's Eve, the Millennium New Year, uh, and was paid less than five pound an hour for doing that. I was probably the lowest paid person in the, in the entire country. But that was the system. Now that, I'm not saying that was right, but it was that is how it's been for a very long time in in medicine. I think it's right and appropriate that we're having discussions now about how we correct that and getting this right balance between the expectations of the job and, and appropriate um, remuneration for doing that makes perfect sense. Um, I, don't, I don't think doctors' pay is right, but I also am a realist and know that there isn't any more money. So um, I think the, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a consultant transplant surgeon there's there's eight people in wales who who can do my job um and if one of my colleagues is sick um and somebody needs to cover their shift then the pay i get for it is not what you would expect for a someone who's doing such a specialized job and there are only a few of us who can do it yeah so one of those things that i've seen with some consultants is that 
their sort of attitude to what the junior doctors are saying at the moment is like, well, we had to go for it. You know, we probably did worse hours than you're talking about, uh, paid less than you in some cases. Is that sort of the attitude that you have as well? Like, in you know, you talk about being like a realist. Is it that junior doctors need to be more like realistic with what they're asking for? No, I don't. I don't. No, I don't think that's the case. Actually, I think you know people will forget what things were like in the past. That's that's the reality of it. Um, and just because it's been a certain way, doesn't mean it's right that it should continue that way. What what we should be doing is thinking about the fact that you know we have a crisis of of recruitment and retention of staff in the NHS generally, and and in doc, and that includes doctors. One of the reasons for that is we don't treat people right. We don't treat them appropriately. And what you can't do to people is is squeeze every single side of them. You can't mm-hmm. squeeze the pay and the hours and the working standards, everything all together. You might get away with tweaking some of those. If you pay more, you can get away with working longer hours or vice versa. But what you can't do, and what we've seen happen over the last probably decade, maybe even more than that, it's just a continuous eroding of those standards in work um, and proportionately the pay. And of course, the other thing that was different from uh, when I qualified is that, that you know, we didn't have huge amounts of, uh, um, we didn't have tuition fees in medical school. We didn't have the same magnitude of loans that most of you guys are coming out of medical school with now. Um, so it's it's no surprise that people people will vote with their feet and they'll leave the speciality, and that's absolutely the wrong thing for us. Yeah, well. So I, I, I think the right thing is that we that we that we approach this via the unions with um, some some good robust negotiations, and and ultimately, if it has to be that there is industrial action, and that's the right thing to do. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And um, you say about, you know, people leaving and exiting, you know, with your job, like you say, there's only eight people in the country that can do that. Do you see on the floor genuine like concern about, look, we, we could end up with no, uh, you know, transplant surgeons in the whole country? Um, yeah, I think some specialities are more at risk of that than others and small specialities like mine are, are more vulnerable. But we see, what you know, already significant crises in some areas um and it's it, it's already crisis you know that there is there's unfilled shifts all over the place every day there's there's unfilled jobs in all of the hospitals all the time um and that you know this is one of the things that i i don't i don't necessarily think that people fully appreciate that you know when when if you're doing a shift and maybe there's supposed to be three of you on that shift as a doctor and one person isn't there because they're sick or because they're not employed, you just have to fill in the gap. Mm. You know, there's, there is no option of saying, well, I don't, you know, there's no one to see that patient. So, you know, they are, you have to do it. So, and I think this is probably the underlying problem with all of this, that we've, we've masked it for so many years because we just cover. Um, and I think probably what we're seeing now is a more proportionate response from junior doctors to say, you know, this isn't reasonable. It's not reasonable to expect people to just do these things. It's not reasonable to not give them appropriate pay 
increases even in line with inflation and that's you know it's these are things that you just can't expect but it has been expected and and we're so far behind now that catching up is going to be a problem Mm. and touching on what you said about people sort of filling in do you think it's like you know the government are taking advantage of you know doctors they're going to find you're going to find it very hard to sort of be like oh no i'm not doing their job because typically it's going to affect someone's quality of life the hospital stay yeah, it, that's that obviously is a factor, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's un, it's very unusual for doctors to take industrial action. And when it happens, it's usually fairly mild in comparison to what you what you can do in other industries. But that doesn't mean that it isn't appropriate to consider those actions and to think about um, what needs to be done. To ultimately, we're all here for the patients at the end of the day and if the one the one thing that's really worth remembering is it's not always the right thing to solve today's problem by working a bit harder at the expense of tomorrow you know sometimes the right thing to do is to say no no let's tackle this now and that means creating a crisis today because there's nobody here um, and force the system to change them okay it worries me though there's no there is we don't put enough money into the NHS and it's not. So, you know, the sorts of, and this is just one area that we need to invest better in. You know, there's the same for many other uh, of our allied professionals. It's the same in the, in the infrastructure. It's the same in the IT structure. We're so far behind that the type of investment that we need, you just, I just can't see it happening. And what we should be having conversations with is how we can put more money into the NHS. And as everybody knows, you you know you can't spend the same pound twice. So the only way of spending that pound twice is to raise it twice. So where does that come from? How do we get more money? Mm. So you mentioned there that you think it could be just unrealistic. Where do you see the NHS going? Like, Are you positive? Do you think it's going to come back with a bit more money or... Do you see it going down a, a different path? I, I I absolutely hope that it does, and I think I think it has to because right? I, I I don't think you can't you can't run healthcare uh, proper healthcare in any other way. Um, now, the difficulty is that you know if if things change, people won't realise until it's too late. You know if things slowly get quietly privatized for example mm. it'll happen and then you won't be able to reverse it um so but you know I, I would i would hate to live in a system that doesn't have universal health care that's free at the points of need um, it's, it's the as soon as you mix money with medicine it goes wrong because how can i make a decision about whether or not it's right to spend a hundred pound on one patient or £10 on 10 patients, you know, and that's what that's the decision you have to make when it comes to finances. And if it's a purely financial decision, you know, you'll treat 10 people, won't you? Of course you will. Yeah. And we've mentioned there are a lot of negative things about the NHS, but obviously you're still working in it, um, which I assume happily working in it. Um, what? How come you stayed? Well, it, it's and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the sort of, amplifying certain parts of, of things and it, it then becomes its own um, its own beast really but 
you know, working in healthcare is still a fantastic place. It's it's an absolute privilege to be um, to look after any kind of patients, um, and it and the sort of you you do see, you know, on a daily basis the difference that it makes actually being there to to care for, look after patients, to to operate on patients, to see their lungs, that uh, you know how they how that changes their life in the long term. Um, and I, I I can't imagine. I can't imagine there's a, there's a more rewarding or fulfilling career out there than working in healthcare. Um, and I, what we need to be doing is trying to frame things in a, in a different way. There's a limit to what people will go through for that, though. Um, and if if it's if you've got to the point where you you have people feeling that it's hopeless, then it will become hopeless. Whereas actually, what we should be doing is focusing on all the good things that we're doing, all of the you know, the hundreds of thousands of patients that we're looking after all the time, um, the advances that we're making and encouraging people to want to be part of that. Okay. Um, and so obviously you work uh, specifically in transplant surgery. Obviously for the recipient, it's absolutely amazing. But there is also, what I find interesting about transplant surgery is there's also the complete opposite for someone else and someone else's family, which is quite awful. Um, and so I just wanted to know what's your involvement with um, the sort of the donor and the recipient? Yeah, so, well, um, it's all, it, it is, the, it is the, the, the thing about working in transplantation that um, you do have a very, um, you have a very keen awareness of, of, of death because a good proportion a significant proportion of the organs that we transplant come from people after they've after they've died um in terms of the transplant surgeon's involvement um we're involved in doing the organ retrieval procedure so actually operating on the donors to take the, the kidneys and the livers and the pancreas and the other organs out but we don't get involved in any way in managing the patients um while they're on the intensive care unit before that. So there's very clear um, barriers, if you like, if there's a very clear dividing line between managing the donor and, and, and thinking about organ donation and transplantation. Um, so, so yeah, we won't, we won't ever go to intensive care to, to see and manage, and manage the patients. We, we all meet them for the first time in the operating theatre, basically. Right, and it's a separate team that do all those do that that part of the uh, process. I assume that sort of dividing line is to prevent sort of emotional attachment. Yeah, it's 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 mostly to make to to ensure that we have um, trust in the system. It's to make sure that there's no perceived conflict of interest between looking after the person before they die and um an organ donation and then transplant um so I, i'm you know i think it's right that and the, the way the way things work the intensive care team will look after that donor until the point where there are no other options for keeping them alive and only in that setting will organ donation be considered uh, and the discussions with the family are done by specialist nurses and the intensive care doctors, not by transplant right. surgeons. 
Um, so we're, we're only involved after all of that part of the process has happened, after the, um, the donor or their family have given consent uh, and only when the organs have been allocated, then we'll, we'll come and do the operating. Okay. Um, and so you, you know, you hear, well, I've heard um, that, you know, the transplant list for multiple organs is, is very, very long. What's it like sort of explaining to someone maybe why they're not the top or if they're unlikely to receive one? You know, I'm assuming it's quite strict criteria to receive a transplant. Uh, Yes, reasonably so. I mean, it's not it's not so much that. So so the area where I I work in in kidney and kidney and pancreas transplants, essentially, if somebody would benefit from that, then we'll put them forward for it. There's no sort of consideration of are there aren't enough organs so we better hold back and not list this particular person it's slightly different in some of the other organs where there are levels of priority for patients so the hearts and the lungs and the livers in particular where there are different levels of of need um, of urgency if you like so they have different categories um, but for us in in the kidney world essentially it's about is this person going to benefit from a transplant? And if they are, we'll put them forward for it. And if they're, if you put them forward for it, what typical sort of wait time would they experience? It's um, on, on average for, for patients who join the transplant list in my unit here in Cardiff, it's, it's about 18 months on average. But one of the things that we explain to our patients from the outset is, there is no average patient, so it's it, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like a waiting list does for a hernia operation or another operation where you um, you wait your time and then when you get to the top of the list, you get the next one. With transplants, it, there are, it, the key part to it is about the matching, and the matching um, is critical to the success, and that. The way it works, you might have a very good match available to you the day you go on the transplant list, in which case you may well get offered that organ. As time goes by, how long you've waited starts to contribute to the point system. It's, a, it's basically it's a point system that happens for everyone on the transplant list. So that's the reason why the longer you wait, the more likely you are to attract offers. Um, so, yeah, average waits of about 18 months but very variable within that. And there are certain groups of patients who we could expect to wait longer. Um, so patients who have what we call, um, uh, who are sensitized, who have antibodies in their blood because maybe they've had a previous transplant or some lots of blood transfusions in the past, makes them more difficult to match. Right. The more difficult to match, you're more likely to wait longer. Um, patients from the... Um, BAME communities also um, because the matching um, system is, is genetic. So the mass matching system is based on your immune system, which you which is inherited. Um, so if you are from um, certain, um, if you have certain ethnic backgrounds, you're more likely to wait because there are fewer donors from those right. backgrounds available. Uh, and for us in the UK, what that means is that patients from the from the BAME communities can expect to wait slightly longer than those uh, Caucasian patients. Okay. And do you often see, because it is genetic, do you often see sort of families 
uh, and or I should say relatives donate their their kidney. Yeah, we encourage that actually, as the because that provides the best quality transplants um, and gives us much more control over when it can happen and things like that. So, about a third of the transplants we do here in Cardiff come from a from a live donor, uh, and we we'd like it to be even more than that because that's as I say, the best possible outcome. Okay, I imagine that brings up some quite emotional sort of scenes when relatives are donating to to maybe their, their child or their father or mother. I, oh, it does. I mean, it, it's, this is, I mean, for, for me, I, I mentioned earlier about how rewarding mm. healthcare work is in general, but this part of, this part of my work is just amazing. Um, and we, we have, um, and we see this every single week, here where people are willing to come forward um to help their loved ones or even to help complete strangers you know people mm-hmm. donate kidneys um just to help a stranger um, and i think yeah we, we we do it we have a system called the, the kidney sharing scheme which is where if we've got if we have a couple here say in cardiff that's um, they're both fit, so a donor's fit to donate and the recipient's fit to receive, but they don't match each other. Uh, what we can do is we can put them into a scheme where we kind of try and do a swap with patients from other centres around the country. Um, and this is a big part of transplantation in the UK now. Um, so what will happen is that you'll have, you know, maybe maybe a couple here in Cardiff donating and a couple in Glasgow donating and they'll take the kidney out in, from Glasgow, send it down to us. We'll be doing this here in Cardiff, send it up to Glasgow and we do a swap basically. Mm-hmm. And you can add in as many centres as you want in, into that. So you can have exchanges between multiple centres. Um, what that means then, of course, is that not only is the person who's donating helping their loved ones, they're also helping someone else somewhere in the country get transplanted. Oh, that's, that's, so that's incredible. That's, yeah, and that's that is that's real every single week in the NHS. That's happening all the time. That's happening, and this is this is goes back again to what I'm saying about what the messages are that we put out. That is absolutely real and happens hundreds of times every year in in the UK. We don't hear about it. That's not the news. The news is something like what the politicians have done today and what yeah. you know, whatever. That's all negative. But the reality is that this sort of thing that goes on all the time, people doing good things for their loved ones and for random strangers as well. Yeah, I guess it must be so tough to see all these good, good things happening on a day-to-day basis, then turning on the news and it just being negative story about the NHS, negative story, you know. That's our life, isn't it, now? I mm. think it's so difficult to to not have that thrust in your face. I think it's trying to reset it, trying to keep proportionality in the whole thing is, is important. And that's, you know, I'm fortunate that I can see, you know, really big and obvious examples of, of people's behaviour um, every week that, that other people are maybe aren't, aren't so easy to see. And um, a bit of good news, but Wales is an opt-out uh, country. Um would you like to see, I'm assuming you think that's the correct decision, would you like to see sort of more countries uptake that? And since it's come in, have you seen um, like the amount of organs available um, go up? Well, as you probably know, Wales 
pioneered the system in the UK, and it was a um, it was an extremely um, useful test as to whether opt out works or not, because we we're part of a UK wide system of organ donation and transplants. <clears throat> so every other part of our system in Wales is identical to England, Scotland, Northern Ireland. So what we were able to do over the period of time before the other countries changed was to actually monitor what happened in Wales in comparison to a real life um, country that is, has everything else in their system the same. And what we were able to show from that is that the consent rates in Wales increased significantly from a point where we were way behind the rest of the UK to the point where we were UK leaders. Um, so, and you know, and all the statistics have, have conclusively shown that opt out or the changes that happened in Wales around that time, I should say, really um, have made a difference. It's extremely difficult to just change one part of a system like this. So the opt out part per se perhaps is less important. This is more about the fact that it's high profile now, that it's discussed a lot, that people are aware of organ donation much more so than they used to be. We found people are much more knowledgeable about what their relatives' decisions are about organ donation, whether that be a yes or a no. You know, it's your personal decision about whether you would want to be an organ donor or not. And the only thing that the healthcare team wants to do is to um, let your decision be the one that goes ahead. So if you want to be an organ donor, we want to allow that to happen. If you don't want to be an organ donor, we don't want it to happen. What we found in Wales is that we're much more aware now because because they're relative because everyone's relatives now are more aware of what they what they want. Okay, something that I heard about the opt out though is that you still get a, quite a lot of confusion or like being upset because maybe someone's obviously hasn't opted out, but then their relatives go, "Well, you know, we really don't want you, to, or we really don't like the idea of taking their organs." Um, how do how do you sort of deal with that situation? Um, yeah, it's, it's, there's, there still has to be a discussion with the family, um, of the potential donor for, for a number of reasons. Firstly, we need to check that the, the decision that we think that person has made is the most recent decision and the family, the best people to be able to tell us that because, you know, people change their minds. People have different views about things as life goes on. So, so we need a check with the family. Um, we need a discussion with a family anyway because there's information that is required for us to go ahead with organ donation. We need social histories. We need background history on the donor to allow it to go ahead safely. So there's always going to be family involvement in that process. Okay. So it then comes down to a decision of, well, look, if you've got strong resistance from a bereaved family, do you go ahead against their wishes or not and what what would normally happen in that situation is that the specialist nurses and the intensive care doctors would try and, and work with the family to try and help them to understand that this was the decision that this person made and try and encourage them to support it really um, but at the end of the day if there's strong resistance <clears throat> some, you know sometimes the right thing is just to say no we're not going to go ahead with donation in that setting okay um, and you know, you talked about maybe focusing a little bit more on the positives. 
So throughout your career, do you have sort of one uh, sort of story or, or whether that's uh, sort of a really positive story or, or a really interesting case? I, I think there's, there's so many positive cases when it comes to, to organ donation. And I think the altruistic donation, so people coming forward just wanting yeah. to donate a kidney to, to a, a stranger who they'll never know and never meet is one of them. I think there's a, <clears throat> we had a, a, a very nice story about a, an elderly gentleman who was, he was actually in his early 80s who who wanted to be an organ donor um, but um, he was well he was a fit guy yeah. um, but he lived alone and he he's kind of played it through in his mind and thought well I'm probably not going to die in a setting that allows donation after death so he came forward to donate a kidney in life uh-huh. and actually as an 81 year old he flew through it He's not in this hospital, he's in another hospital. Yeah. Um, but he donated a kidney that was successfully transplanted, that patient recipient of that did very well. Um, and that's the sort of example of that always sticks with me of, of, of what people are willing to do. Um, and as I say, I see examples that are, of people just doing good all the time, um, which is the balance against some of the other negatives that we hear in the news, etc. Yeah, I mean, that's incredibly uh, generous, isn't it? Um, how old was the person that received this, this sort of 80-year-old uh, kidney? <clears throat> I don't know the exact details, but they'll be, most likely they will have been older themselves. Um, oh, but we have, we, have plenty of, we have plenty of patients in their 70s who are waiting for a transplant. You know, that would be a very good quality organ. Mm. Actually, live donor transplants um because they're such good quality because we check the donors out so carefully to make sure we're not going to put them in any harm um that's likely a very good kidney for for most people really anybody from 50 upwards would probably that would probably be a good organ for them okay and then on the opposite side do you have any you know sort of stories where it hasn't gone to plan or maybe you've questioned you know yourself in surgery you, you, you'll always question yourself when things don't go smoothly and it, you, you have to be realistic that not every case goes according to plan, not every outcome is what you would like it to be. Um, it's it's terribly sad when, particularly when, um, maybe when people have donated kidneys to their loved ones and then something's happened to the recipient and maybe they've mm. maybe they've died quickly after the operation within the first few weeks or months. That's That's very difficult. It's very difficult because he's, you know, obviously the sadness of, of losing the losing the patient, but also what that donor's gone through as well. Um, so those cases are tough. Fortunately, it's extremely unusual. It's extremely rare. Yeah. We see it only very, very occasionally. Um, but those are probably the worst cases. No, I can I can imagine. Um, and you know, you mentioned earlier about your surgical training it being tough, but not sort of terrible. I mean, I personally heard that, you know, it can be described like the worst years of your life. It can be that tough. Do you have any advice for, you know, how to handle those eight years? I, I, I definitely don't think it's the worst, worst <laughs> years of your life. I think it's, I think it's, it's tough, but, you know, and, and probably things get, well, things change as we, as we get more experienced and as we age, don't we? Things that, you know, your responsibility increases, but also your ability to cope with those responsibility increases as well. Um, 
what what I would say to and what I do say to to students when they're thinking about what they want to do long term, um, don't worry so much about the pathway to get there. Think about what it's going to be like when you're there, because that actually is the starting point. Think, don't pick a speciality that's got a nice easy road in training if it's not if it's going to be miserable for the rest of your life. So start by thinking. What is life like as a consultant in in this speciality? And talk to the consultants to find that out because you won't find it out from the junior doctors. What you'll find from them is what their life is like running a busy renal ward or a, or a busy um, GI ward. <coughs> the consultant's experience will be vastly different. So try try and, and talk to the consultants about what the, what that speciality is like Ask them to tell you what they see as the pros and cons, because they're at one an advantage for one person may be seen as a disadvantage for another. Someone who likes consistency um, might want to choose, you know, certain elective surgical specialities, whereas someone who likes uncertainty might want to work in accident and emergency units, for example. So check with the consultants what the life is like, and then. You know, then talk to the trainees about what it's what you need to do to get there. They're not, you know, the training schemes take a lot of work, but they're all completely doable. You know, if you can pass, you can get to the point of being appointed onto them. That means you've got the ability to get through them. There's lots of support available from all of the training organisations to get you through it. There's much better awareness now of the need for a good work-life balance. There's much more awareness now of some of the issues of fatigue and burnout and things like that. And there's lots of support around. We've got really good professional support units in Wales who, who help our, our trainees. Uh, absolutely fantastic people uh, running that to, who give superb advice. Um, so there's, there's loads of support available. And it's although there will be some times that are tough, it's there are ways of getting through that and you're not on your own to get through that and the end point will be worth it okay that's well that's very good to hear and um, you mentioned their um work-life balance so what do you do to sort of get that balance or what do you do you know when you sign out well i've got uh, for me personally i've got a couple of things that i do i've got a family to begin with so i've got two two daughters who, who very much keep my feet on the ground and <laughs> will always um will always um, keep me grounded. They, uh, my, my youngest daughter in particular will tell me if I'm working too hard, she leaves little notes on my desk. Uh-huh. Um, so I've got one here on my wall that says, uh, less working, more tickling, um, <laughs> which uh, is, a good, is a good summary. And yeah, if you listen to people who you trust like that, then you, you, you can tell whether you've got your your balance right obviously i haven't done at that point we'll make a few changes and we get things a bit better so i've got my family um i do a lot of running as well so that's my kind of um that's my kind of exercise get out really so i'll do four or five hours a week of of, of road running to um to keep me sane as a get a bit of space of my a bit of head space for me then as well Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been a pleasure and and very insightful. So thank you very much. You're welcome.